What's up, y'all? I got a dance deal for you, Chicago. Hubbard Street Dance heats up the Harris Theater stage with its spring series of joy next week. Now, this is some of the most dynamic, cutting-edge contemporary dance made by the world's leading choreographers right here in Chicago. I'm excited for Echoes of Our Ancestors by Maria Torres, among other creators. But you can only catch it for three performances between May 17th and May 19th. Luckily, CityCast Chicago listeners can get tickets in any section for 20% off using code CityCast online or over the phone. Visit HubbardStreetDance.com for details and use code CityCast. Today on CityCast Chicago, Sox Park shooting remains a mystery, city sues Kia and Hyundai, and how one North Park restaurant is rebuilding after a devastating fire. I'm joined today by WTTW's Joanna Hernandez and Tom Schubert from the Chicago Sun-Times. It's Friday, September 1st. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago is talking about. Welcome back, Tom. Welcome back, Joanna. Happy to have you back on CityCast Chicago. Hello. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me. Hey, I appreciate y'all energy. I appreciate y'all making time for us and answering my emails and or DMs uh, whenever they come up. Um, Before we get into the stories this week, earlier on the podcast, uh, back on Wednesday, we talked about restaurants in Chicago, particularly, though, some major closures in the city from restaurants that have been open for 40 years or 70 years to restaurants that didn't make it past four months. Uh, We talked about what that means for our dining scene, what it means for neighborhoods, for people who visit them. And so I've kind of got a question for both both of y'all, which is which Chicago restaurant, if it closed, would absolutely break your heart that you'd walk up, see that we're closing sign and you might drop some tears. Uh, Joanne, I'm going to start with you. What's that restaurant for you? All right. All right. I was really thinking hard, but my mind went to this Thai restaurant that's in Boys Town. It's called Joy's. And I used to go there in college all the time and I still go and I just love it so much. I it's it's my comfort food. I love Thai food. So I feel like if there was a point during COVID that I thought it was going to close. So mm-hmm. I was really sad. So I feel like if it would close now, it, it would break my heart. They have really good uh, Thai fried rice. No, that's a good choice. I've been enjoyed before. That's a great choice. Tom, come on, bring it in here. Let's get the sad news rolling. If this restaurant were to shut down, it it hurts you. It hurts you. <laughs> I was honestly going to go with the Thai spot, too. Which is- go with it. Go with it. Okay, so so Sticky Rice is in North Center. Their curries are incredible. The Penang curry specifically. It was like my pandemic comfort, you know, Uber Eats comfort food. I couldn't go there anymore. And um, it's just fabulous i think they have a like one of like the ethnic food michelin stars from like years ago it's amazing it's amazing to take out or sit down there and it it would break my heart two great suggestions um i had a hard time thinking about this as well and i ended up picking two one from my childhood if i 57 rib house closed (laughs) on the south side uh, like i think it's like morgan park maybe leaning into pullman um if they closed absolutely heartbroken. Uh, But then as an adult, one that would really get me is Chi Cafe in Chinatown. Uh, Not only do I love the mango shrimp, but I've had the absolute best date 
of my life at Chi Cafe with my now partner. It's a place we still go back to every couple months. Absolutely one of my favorite restaurants in Chicago now. So I-57 has lost some locations over my life. So if that last one off of 115th and Western closed, that'll get me. Uh, but yeah, Chi Cafe, I've made some good memories there over the last year. So that 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 would hurt as well. Like it, it'd be heartbreaking in more than one way. So I see that we like that Asian cuisine. I mean, and Chicago has has got so fantastic good. options. Um, so we'll make sure we drop some links because remember, we're not writing these places off. These places have not closed to be clear. So make sure you check them out. Um, again, Joanna, yours was Joy's up in Boys Town. And Boys Town. And Tom, yours? Sticky Rice. But my number two would have been uh Ethiopian Diamond. Mm. which uh, is in Edgewater and it's an incredible uh, Ethiopian spot that is one good, great date spot. Also, you know, you get the, you get the spongy bread on the bottom and all the stews <laughs> and, you know, it's a great, it's a great way to commune with people, right? Mm-hmm. Sharing food with just your hands. It's beautiful. Every single week, we like to bring in some friends from across the city to talk about the stories that matter to them and ultimately matter to you as a listener. Uh, Tom, get us started off today. What's one of these stories that you've been following? It's a little bit of a mystery on 35th Street. The mystery isn't that the Sox are good or bad because, you know, spoiler alert, they suck right now, uh, you know, and that's them, my boys. But something else has Sox fans very confused right now. Yeah, it was already like a bad start to the week for the Sox when all this speculation about you know, are they going to move? What's going to happen with the team? The, obviously, the product on the field has been terrible. Kenny Williams was forced out. So, like, then we get this Schrodinger's bullet on, on Friday, last Friday, um, in the bleachers. And sadly, you have two women. One's grazed in her stomach. One's shot twice in her leg. And it's been a kind of a media frenzy since then. And there's been limited uh, answers as to what happened. You know, one theory that emerged was bullets dove into the stadium, possibly from as far as a mile away, and they landed and they hit these women. The police superintendent, Fred Waller, came out on Monday, said, oh, we've all but ruled that out. Now it sounds like that theory is back in play. Uh, The other theory, there was, uh, you know, a, a reporter for ESPN 100 who came out and said, to you know huge amounts of retweets and and conversation and reposting and uh you know on right-wing tabloids and stuff that one of these victims had uh you know hidden a gun and i think the term she used was belly fat or something like that to get into the stadium and that's how she bypassed security the police department has kind of pushed back on that saying that's not confirmed yet um but obviously it's a huge talking point um you know, sadly, this woman, you know, she was she was injured and we we still don't know how she, she retained a lawyer. She went mm-hmm. out and the lawyer said she didn't sneak a gun in the stadium. And, you know, that's that's what her claim is right now. Uh, I talked to the, you know, vice president of communications for the Sox. He says, we don't see any evidence that a gun was taken in here. They haven't stopped playing. It's not like they've, you know, kicked the fans out or anything. Right. And so but, you know, the question has been. Why uh, Why wasn't the game stopped? They said, we don't have to see an active threat here. So they let the game continue. Sadly for the fans, Tone Loke and Vanilla Ice were not able to perform. The, the, the performance was canceled. And um, But that was like, you know, hours after the shooting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question remains, well, why cancel this thing but let the game continue? You know, what's the integrity of this crime scene at that point? And still, 
still no gun and still no criminal charges or any indication of what the hell happened. Well, thankfully she's okay. Mm-hmm. Thankfully she's okay. That's that's the bottom thing. But it is so so interesting and confusing at the same time. I've seen videos from inside the stadium. I've seen pictures from trying to scroll in. Right, I've been trying to scroll and trying to see the videos. Yeah, from after the incident. I mean, this mystery been going on for the last week. So now, seven days later, like, who are you trying to follow up with the most? Is it CPD? Is it White Sox officials? Like, who's going to, I guess, carry the burden of explaining this to people? Because I think some people are just going to run with these theories regardless. Yeah. True. I mean, it's this, it's this, it's the CPD's investigation. The ATF is now involved because they're going to help them with ballistics testing. Mm-hmm. I think they have better technology than the CPD does, and maybe they can process this stuff faster. Um, but I think it's their question to answer. And, you know, obviously the Sox are a little conflicted because, you know, uh, a specific narrative could show that the organization, you know, failed to keep fans safe. You know, I, it's bizarre, but we've had these situations before where like the CPD's press apparatus kind of like clams up. We had it with Jussie Smollett and we had all these theories sources say this sources say this and it's kind of like well there's nothing concrete where's the paper that shows that where's mm-hmm. you know why haven't you taken any action so it's like we're just left kind of in limbo here yeah. waiting and who knows like you said that video of the shooting that is, has been made public it's like you can't really tell when this happened you can't there's nothing discernible that seems out of sorts or anything or any real reaction so it just looks like somebody got stung by a bee or something yeah and then like okay people kind of crowd around when it becomes clear but i don't know it's also scary because the first when i when i saw the tweet i was like oh my god not another mass shooting you know that's scary i mean it's such a public place mm-hmm. so that's the first thing you know you think about like really at a stadium how but i mean looking at all these other mass shootings i mean the reality it happens anywhere yeah so i mean thankfully you know nobody was severely hurt that way but i mean it's still a very like scary situation just nah. to think about what could have happened. Ups the paranoia for yeah. sure. And I'm already walking around with a, a decent amount of it. And so I yeah. didn't need anything else. So we will continue to follow this when, when there are more updates, we'll report them on the podcast. If you want to know what's been going on with the Sox on the field and up in the executive offices, make sure you listen to our episode featuring CHGO's Herb Lawrence from earlier this week, Monday. Um, Joanna, I want to bring it to you to a story that, has been around for the last year, which is when asylum seekers and migrants started arriving in Chicago, being sent here via bus, train, plane, from Republican-led states like Texas and Florida. We've seen how flat-footed our city has been and in some ways continues to be, but there have been plenty of updates on volunteer efforts trying to bring shelters in. Can we talk about what this means to now be a full year in and in some ways still feel like we're scrambling as a city. No, it, it, I can't even believe it's been a year. Um, it does still feel like people are still scrambling just because there's still buses coming. I mean, I just spoke with someone who said there was like 10 buses that came this week. Can you imagine the amount of people? So you're trying to find shelter for them. And the people who are already in shelter, they're trying to find permanent housing. So it's just, it's a really hard cycle that's happening right now. You see the videos at the police station, especially like police district 12 or police district three. Like it's it's tough when you see 50 
um, asylum seekers and their families and kids sleeping in the police station. But I, as we reach this, as we reach a year, what I'm really focusing on is shining light on the grassroots efforts because they're really the stars of this. Um, they have really put their time, their money, their effort to just help other humans. And the reality is that they're not getting funding from the city. I mean, the, the city has about 15, you know, shelters and respite centers. Uh, you know, we understand that they've been trying to accommodate people and trying to find ways um, to house them and help them. But it's really this uh, grassroots um, efforts, churches, organizations, volunteers who are making their own groups to help people. So that has been really interesting to see. Yeah, we sat down with the president of the Little Village Community Council, Baltazar Enriquez, and he said it was wild for him to be getting these calls from colleagues in Texas, for example, and being like, hey, bro, I just saw a bus leave with 50 people. They're going to be there tomorrow and having to scramble in that way. And, you know, we've said it plenty of times on the show. You know, we've criticized the city where it feels necessary. And when we're talking about things like how is funding being, how is it being used? What is the plan of attack moving forward? How are we not only getting people sort of temporary housing, but starting that process towards citizenship, towards residency, towards being able to work? We just saw this week Governor Pritzker and Mayor Brandon Johnson are urging the federal government to allow for arriving asylum seekers the opportunity to work during that limbo period that I mean, could last anywhere from a year to some years. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. And so now that we're seeing, you know, there's a talks that a shelter in my neighborhood, Hyde Park, Kenwood, might open up at the Lake Park Hotel in the next week. And so we're seeing more shelters arise. But, you know, how are you feeling, Joanna, about sort of the 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 conversation around how communities feel because it, it still feels in some ways like these meetings are a little contentious that people don't feel brought into the process and are, and are very confused about the timelines. You know, I, I have to be honest, it, it was, it was tough. Some of the meetings were, were tough for me when I, when I would go into the meetings, you know, my parents, they migrated here from Mexico years ago. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So, but I also have to understand that these communities I have to understand how they're feeling and um, the things that they've been needing for years um, that the city hasn't provided for them. So I can understand that there's a lot of hurt. And unfortunately, that comes with tension. And when we don't understand how our circumstances are a certain way, we we say things sometimes we don't mean. So sometimes these meetings have been hard to hear, especially for myself. You know, I'm, I'm a, a woman that came from immigrant parents. Um, but what I've seen in some of these neighborhoods like South Shore or Woodlawn is that they are, the communities are trying, they're coming together. And that's by just having conversation, right? They, somebody from the community can meet one of the asylum seekers and see their families and hear about their journeys. And that's where the compassion comes from, right? The, the human interaction to be like, well, that could have been me. Like I've, I have also gone through really hard times. Um, so it, it's a tough situation, but I mean, what else can we do? You're going to have an influx of people just all over the street, homeless, on top of the homeless crisis that we already have. So, I mean, at this point, the grassroots organizations and just volunteers are doing their best to house people, to give them an opportunity. At an exhausting level. It's hard. Yes. I mean, many of them are literally using their own resources. You know, I have this woman that I know that she has her own small organization in her own apartment, she's housing like 30 people Ooh. from her own resources, 30 people. And that's her home. 
she's opening up to her home to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I went to another organization um, that they're housing over 70 people there, giving them a bed, trying to help them through the asylum process. So I, I spoke with one woman. It's been a year for her and she is close to getting her work permit. But that's a year. Yeah. Can you imagine all other people still coming in? So it's it's. It's a tough situation, but I, I think everyone's interested to see what the branded administration is going to do, especially that they have a task force. Um, so it's kind of like a waiting game. And I think the goal here is many of these organizations are hoping that they can work together with the city and, and get some type of funding. Yeah. Tom, I want to bring you in here for a second, because I think the harshest part of this reality is there is no end in sight. This is a human story that feels like it's being told on the sort of political playing field, because for Texas and Florida governors, this is really about and they've said it in, in you know, sort of air quotes, sort of embarrassing Demo- Democratic ran states. And so a year ago, this started. And now a year from now, we'll have the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And these governors have already promised to keep the buses coming, to send more and more people as we get closer to this major political event, which, again, only highlights how much of a, for me, a a very inhumane, uh, sort of violent approach that these governors have taken. What will you be watching for looking forward, knowing that, you know, they plan to be doing this well into a year from now? Yeah, I think you're right. This is inhumane and cruel by all accounts. And the idea, I think, was to make a political point, right? That this is, uh, the the level of immigration is untenable, it can't be handled. And that's what, you know, Abbott is trying to do here, is overwhelm democratic cities that are welcoming cities to make this point. Um, And so I'm, I'm, you know, likely there will be a a lot of an influx that they'll send around the DNC to Chicago to make make this point, right? Look at this is what a welcoming city looks like, right? And it's their opportunity to do this um, rather than everyone trying to work together to to come to a solution to to aid people who are fleeing awful conditions looking for a better life. We will continue to follow Mayor Brandon Johnson, Governor J.B. Pritzker, as they secure more resources, as they work to open more shelters across the city. Uh, But also, as Joanna pointed out, as they continue to partner with the grassroots organizations that have been, you know, carrying this load in many ways since last August. So we'll continue to provide updates. Make sure you're following Chicago Sun-Times, WTTW, and CityCast Chicago, wherever you get your podcast to learn more about this ongoing situation. Are you self-conscious about your smile? Do you only allow yourself a closed mouth grin? Well, with Aligner Experts, there's no reason for you to diminish your smile. As orthodontists, they have the privilege of witnessing the remarkable transformation of patient smiles, which often translates into a profound boost in their confidence. Yet, there always seems to be a deterrent. I ain't got the time, I don't have the funds. Luckily, Aligner Experts is redefining convenient and accessible clear aligner solutions. With customizable treatments, transparent pricing, and their cutting edge 3D scanners and dental monitoring technology, you can transform your smile through the convenience of your own schedule. Stop in at their West Loop or Lakeview Clinic today for your complimentary smile assessment. Aligner Experts, your destination for advanced clear aligner solutions. P.S. They got another clinic on the way. 
So stay tuned for their Old Town location. I'm sitting down with WTTW's Joanna Hernandez and Tom Schubert from the Chicago Sun-Times. As we keep things moving, Tom, I want to bring it back to you. We have heard a lot over the last few years, especially during the height of the pandemic, um, about carjacking being up in this city. But one of the things that I don't think has gotten a good amount of attention is sort of what is the accountability or even the responsibility on like the car manufacturing side of things about making cars more like anti-theft proof? I don't know if that's the right phrasing, but, but that's what I'm going with for right now. And Mayor Johnson took a huge step in the last couple of weeks to try um, and show that he's moving towards uh, uh, holding someone accountable. Uh, can you update us on this? Sure. So uh, the city sued Kia and Hyundai last week, South, you know, connected South Korean auto manufacturers. Um, essentially, a, a viral trend started uh, that, you know, cities across the country are alleging has kind of fueled a, a crisis of car thefts. And it was essentially mostly young, young uh, boys and men uh, filming themselves exploiting a, uh, a manufacturing flaw in Kias and Hyundais that allowed them to essentially hotwire the cars using a USB cord. And they came to be known colloquially as the Kia boys. But, you know, it, it, it did, lead, you know, it's contributed to large spikes in car thefts in Chicago for sure. And what the lawsuit points out is that because Kias and Hyundais are reasonably priced, it, it really impacts low and middle income Chicagoans mm. disproportionately because that's whose cars are being taken. Essentially, what the city is pushing for, what other cities who have sued over this are pushing for is, uh, you know, a recall to ensure that a, a pretty standard uh, device, uh, an engine immobilizer is installed in these Kias and Hyundais made between 2011 and 2022, I believe. This is like standard technology that's used to just ensure it's a it's make sure that there's a you know a chip that uh, corresponds with the key and mm -hmm. make sure this is the key for this car and it can turn it on. That's being subverted right now, and it's you know it, it has caused uh, a lot of issues. And I think Brandon Johnson is following what a lot of other big cities have already done, which is to sue the manufacturers to try to take some action. What mm -hmm. what he claims is they haven't done much, right? Yeah. They, they promised. You know, there's like car locks that you used to see on like late night TV that you put on the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. We promised those. The big they, bar? <laughs> yeah, the big bar one. They haven't delivered them. And that, you know, these these upgrades, software upgrades are, are not really effective. There's, you know, people who upgrade are still being, having their cars stolen. So, yeah, it's it's a big issue. And actually in federal court, just recently, a judge rejected a $200 million settlement with Kia and Hyundai and car owners. The judge said, this isn't enough money. You're, yeah. you're having a catch-all, but for these are cars made over a decade. The more recent ones, those people should be getting more money if their cars are damaged or stolen because they're worth more than the other people. So now they're back to the drawing board on this class action suit too. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are taking aim at Kia and Hyundai. Yeah, according to the numbers, they made up 41% 
of the over 21,000 car thefts, even though they're only 7% of the cars on the road. And so, you know, for the people who say, well, why don't we focus on other manufacturers or why don't, you know, we go after the people? Well, well, because like you said, this is a vulnerability that's being exploited. It's not the end all be all, uh, but it is a major contributor um, from car manufacturers back to the restaurant industry in Chicago. Uh, we talked about some restaurants earlier today that if they were to shut down, we'd be heartbroken. Um, and some neighbors up in North Park are feeling a, a same sense of uh, of that. Joanna, can you tell us about the about this restaurant? No, yeah, the restaurant is called uh, Taqueria Las Flores, and it's um, right on Foster. And it it touched me, and it made me. It made me feel um, really bad for the owner. She's a young 33-year-old entrepreneur who opened her restaurant a couple of years ago, and her restaurant caught on fire. Yeah. And and it was an electrical fire, and it's com- her restaurant's completely destroyed. Now, the story behind it is that besides the fire, she already was going to have to move because the landlord had sold the building and the goal here is that they're making, uh, I believe a five story um, apartment complex um, with a restaurant, with restaurant uh, capacity in the bottom, but she was going to have to leave regardless. Um, And all of a sudden there's this electrical fire and the downfall is that she's not getting anything back because she says there's a clause in her contract. So she pretty much lost everything. And she's starting from scratch. And I went out there to go visit her and talk to her about it. And she's just trying to rebuild to try to reopen. But can you imagine losing almost $80,000 of equipment and having to start over? Um, You know, her dream was to open this restaurant because her father had a Mexican restaurant. And that was her goal. She used her space um, to house different types of events. And she would also have events for children. And she helped during COVID. She didn't receive a PP loan during COVID. So, I mean, she was struggling, but she managed to survive. And now this fire completely destroyed her restaurant. Do they think that they'll be able to maybe, if they find a new location, be able to reopen someday? She's hoping. You know, she did start a GoFundMe page um, to try to raise money to not only help her employees who lost their jobs, um, but to see if she's able to rebuild. You know, I I think I just saw right now she's raised $20,000. And I know she's very, she's told me that she's very thankful for that. But as we all know, opening any type of restaurant or any type of business is a lot. Yeah. Um, so it's it's unfortunate what happened, but I really hope that she gets to rebuild because she's really such a great person and mm. someone who's still so young. And to build, to start a business like that from scratch takes a lot. So I hope she's able to make it through. Yeah, we put our listeners on a, a cafe in Woodlawn a couple of weeks ago that uh, experienced a break-in. And some of our listeners actually donated. So if you're hearing this story and you find it in your heart that you also uh, want to contribute to this cause, uh, we appreciate you. I know that they would be thankful as well. Uh, Tom, Joanna, I appreciate y'all bringing these stories, both the ones that were on the, the front pages to the ones that people might not have seen this week. Uh, every episode of CityCast pretty much ends the same way. With me begging people to sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, which you can subscribe now at chicago.citycast.fm. But before I do that, I usually hit people with some good news. This is going to be personal, professional, a weekend event, something you're looking forward to. Tom, what is your good news for the CityCast listeners? (laughs) Well, you know, growing up in Chicago, uh, 
everyone is kind of a Kanye West fan, and this is the 18th anniversary of of late registration. Uh, you know, it, it, a real step forward for Kanye artistically, and it came at a time when like Chicago, it was finally like Chicago is on the map, right? Mm-hmm. We had Twista came out, you know, had two great albums around then. Um, Common had his first album on Good Music B that had a lot of con- Kanye production. You know, if you were in Chicago 18 years ago today, you probably couldn't go anywhere without hearing late registration everywhere. Um, it had there was huge hits like Gold Digger. Boy, Brandy was on there on Bring Me Down, and it's one of the songs that I think people yeah. overlook the most from late registration because you had Diamonds, yeah. you had Drive Slow with Paul Wall, right? You there were so many clear uh gone with cameron on gone mm-hmm, with consequence touch the sky with lupe which introduced me to lupe at the time i, I was asleep at that time and so <laughs> it's it's for me it's the it's, it's the kanye album that you know i understand you got graduation my beautiful dark twist of fantasy people got their favorites but if i could only pick one for me it's that one just i I mean, the cockiness of making your sophomore album have this stadium sound, like all of the opulence of the production just didn't catch me off guard, but it was it was unique. It was different. It was brash it was probably an early sign of the things to come. But at the yeah. time, it was the album that transitioned from me from eighth grade graduation to my first uh, to my <laughs> freshman year at Mount Carmel. And so it was the album that was getting played a lot in the lunchroom at the time. I'm going to go listen to it now after this. Joanna, let's keep it moving with your some good news. What you got for CityCast today? Some good news. Hmm, let me see. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I, I guess, you know, I, I'll do. I'll keep it a little personal. Please you know? do. I'll keep it a little I've personal. I've been seeing the picadillos. You Come see on. the pics, the Instagram pics? You know, I got <laughs> married to my wife. After nine years, it was a beautiful, beautiful journey, you know, of acceptance from my parents. So we finally got to have our families together and and bless our union and it was just like really wonderful we got married in this beautiful uh secret garden in edgewater and it was everything i i freaking wanted and i think the best part is i get to live my truth with my family and full of acceptance and i think that's the best thing that anyone ever wants um so yeah it's a a goal checked Come on, you 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 here with us? Not too many weeks after uh, after a wedding, after a honeymoon. What what has that these last few weeks been like? I know again, you all you all had years and years in the bank already, and it was a a much longer journey inside of your community. But what did that moment when just the two of you got to sit there and sort of reflect on that? That in many ways that Chicago story together. I know it's it's gone from it's been in other places, uh, yeah. but but what w- what was that moment like? Man, it was so surreal. Like everyone always tells you how you're going to feel the day of your wedding. But man, that after we got married, we shared a moment together and just her and I looking at each other and just kind of taking a deep breath and just being like, man, we did this. Like, you know, we paid for our entire wedding. Like we worked together through it. You know, we brought our families together. We fought through all that and just looking at each other and being like, okay, man, we got this. Like we can do anything now you know, and work through it and, and fight through it. And that's like the best part that I took from it. And that's one of the memories that I remember just holding her hand there in our moment and just being like, man, okay, we're ready for the next stop. You know, we're ready for whatever's to come. And I'm just like, so proud that I hope that somebody gets to see that who's an LGBTQ person that you can do it too. 
And as a Latina woman, as a queer woman, you know, I have everything I, I wanted because I fought for it. So I hope someone who sees my pictures on Instagram, that's why I'm not private because I'm very open. I, I hope that it helps, you know, another young LGBTQ person to to just dream and remember that it's going to be OK. Um, I'm going to bring this thing home and I have like a two part good news from earlier this week, but also something you can look forward to this weekend. Uh, earlier this week, the city of Chicago celebrated Fred Hampton Day. Um, Hampton, as many of y'all know, was the Illinois Black Panther Party chairman during the 60s. Uh, he was a West Sider who fed, housed, educated thousands of black folks and worked to build coalitions um, across the city, both racially and economically in the name of liberation. Uh, it was unfortunately assassinated by the Chicago Police Department, December 4th, 1969, alongside uh, Mark Clark, his comrade, and Mayor Brandon Johnson officially declared August 30th Fred Hampton Day. Um, there was a huge celebration out in Maywood. Um, and so I just wanted to bring more attention to the ongoing and enduring legacy of Fred Hampton. If you talk with young organizers in this city today, many of whom who are still using the philosophies and the teachings of Hampton, I mean, who was in his 20s, was 21 years old when he when he was leading the uh, the Panthers back in the late 60s. Uh, you know, people still turn towards, you know, some of his writings, some of his teachings, some of his uh, his words today as that fight for liberation is ongoing in Chicago, um, which is an easy transition point. I want to give a huge shout out uh, to the homies over at Respair Production and Media. It's a production company found by uh, the duo behind the Ergo Media podcast. Uh, Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger. Over the summer, they have released a few new projects that we've talked about on the show, including a podcast called Guaranteed, which looks at Chicago's guaranteed income pilot, as well as the pilot in Cook County to talk about its efficacy and importance. They released a... A uh, podcast called Help This Garden Grow, which is about the life and legacy of Hazel Johnson, the mother of environmental justice, who was born on the far south side of Chicago. And now this Saturday, they're previewing their first film project called One Million Experiments at Baseline and South Loop. Uh, you can enjoy all of these projects, whether you come to the event on Saturday to check out the film or I'll drop links to the other podcast the company has dropped. I'm just really proud of both of them. I've gotten to attend some of these launch events over the summer, uh, listen to some of these podcasts, uh, and it's really exciting to see uh, the type of media they've been able to make in addition to Ergo, uh, but these cool Chicago stories they've been able to tell. We'll drop links to all of these events. I want to give a huge thank you to WTTW's Joanna Hernandez, as well as from the Chicago Sun-Times, Tom Shuba. It's always a pleasure when y'all come on the show uh, and today was no different. Thank y'all so much. Thank you. This is fun. Appreciate it. Before I let you go, I want to give a huge shout out to the people who helped make CityCast Chicago possible. Our lead producer is Simone Alisea. Our newsletter editor is Sydney Madden. Our producers are Lizzie Goldsmith and Grant Irving. Our roving newsletter editor is Natalia Aldana. The music we all love to listen to is from the homie Sam Thousand, All the Kimonos, and Mark Greenberg from the Mayfair Workshop. Hey, if you enjoy the show nearly as much as I love making it, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Subscribe to Hey Chicago at Chicago.com citycast.fm we gonna be back bright and early tuesday i'll talk to you then peace do your laugh in the middle joint is hilarious <laughs> it knows the know, it's, my it's the rhythm it's like oh. i know <laughs> you're gonna be able to see it in the you're gonna be able to see it in the <laughs> audio it's so perfect <laughs> it's, it's perfect <laughs>